And when he returned to Capernaum, after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near to him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, Why does this man speak like this? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk. But that you may know the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. So if this is your first time, um, we have been going through the book of Mark and we've, we've really been excited about it because it's shown us a lot of stuff, a lot of good stuff. And um, we decided that we're just going to take 2015 and go through the book of Mark and try to get through this um, the best we can. And, and to be honest with you, if, uh, just to kind of put everyone on the same page, we really asked the question, man, if we're going to start a church, let's talk about who we're starting a church around because we say it's Jesus. Well, who is Jesus? And what's great about the book of Mark, it offers us an insight, and I've said this every single week, it offers us an insight to see who Jesus is when no one knows who Jesus is, okay? Except us as the readers. Mark, from the outset, set this idea up to go, hey, this is Jesus, the Son of God. He brings the gospel of God. He, he, he's part of this trinity. Um, not only that, but, but he's bringing his kingdom. And yet, amidst all of that, everyone surrounding him, nobody knows that this is the son of God. Nobody, Mark never tells us. So Adrian Smith, as I said this, it's an epic drama unfolding. Only the demons recognize who he is until we get to the very end of the book. And finally, it's um, told by a man. He, he looks at Jesus on the cross, Jesus only being recognized on the cross, which is beautiful in itself. And we'll get to that in months. But he says, surely this is the son of God. And so we've got to see the ins and outs of what that looks like. And what we've done the last couple of weeks as we focused in on Jesus and his authority. So he has told us the kingdom of God is at hand. The time is, or the time is at hand. Uh, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. And Jesus comes in and he is bringing this kingdom. Now, we don't know too much about this kingdom, but we do know and we're learning about this king of this kingdom. And what we have found over the last couple of weeks is this king says, in my kingdom, there's no sickness. In my kingdom, there's no leprosy. In my kingdom, you get the original stuff from me. I, I speak directly to you. In my kingdom, last week, there is no leprosy. And amidst all of that, Jesus is interacting very, very intimately with every single person. He's touching Peter's mother-in-law's arm. He's touching the leper. He's speaking directly to people. He's not from a far-off distance God that says, hey, you do this because I said this. Now you're healed from far away. But he very much involves himself in the muck and miry of our sins, of the sickness, of the pain, of the leprosy, so on and so forth. And so we've got to see that, and that's really cool. And now, um, with that said, we kind of turn a, a chapter. Obviously, Mark doesn't write this in chapters, but we, we flip the page and we get to chapter two, okay? And some of this is going to continue, but here's what I'm going to do this morning. And this is either going to be really awesome, okay? Or it's going to be really terrible. Now, it's spring break, so, um, you know, it's, you know, what happens in Peoria stays in Peoria, um, okay? So here's, here's, here's what we say, and here, here's what I'm going to do. Um, uh, we're going to read this story, and we are going to treat it like something called a multi-perspective film. 
What a multi-perspective film, you guys have probably seen some of these before. Um, there is a movie called Go, I wouldn't suggest watching. Or, uh, older than that, there's a movie called Citizen Kane. Um, even current movies, I think 2006, Babel came out. Basically, the premise of what these, uh, actually Vantage Point is a great movie that you can watch. That's this. The premise of, is, is, uh, of uh, these type of movies is it's not chronological. It doesn't go from um, zero seconds to 120 minutes. What, what happens is it plays this scene from one view, and then it plays that same scene from a different view, then it plays that same scene from a different view, and that same scene from a different view, and that's how it plays out. And this morning, I've never done this before, but I hope it works because I think um, there's a lot to grab from this uh, for us to be able to do this. Uh, We're going to take that notion, and here's why. Um, Because uh, one of the most provocative verses, I I think, in in all of the New Testament, one of the coolest, like, thought-provoking verses in all of the New Testament is, you have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. You have the four Gospels of Jesus Christ, which is the four books, the four accounts of Jesus' life. And at the very end of the last book, the Gospel of John, the very last verse says something amazing. It, it's, l- l- let me read it to you. It says this in, in John 21, verse 25. It says, now there are... Also, many other things that Jesus did. So we just read four books about Jesus. Okay, keep in mind. Um, Now, there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. So so John makes this bonker statement. He makes a statement to go, okay, we've seen how it plays out. This is Jesus' life. But I'm telling you, what he's done is so much more than what I've just wrote in these chapters and what were written in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. I'm telling you, there is way more going on. And if we were to try to write down every single thing that Jesus did, the intentionality of every step he made, every person he touched, everything that, that was healed, every single um, time his kingdom, we, we see a reflections of that uh, coming to the earth. If we were to write down in, in a book and then write down in another book, you can write down book, volume after volume. And John, and, and whether this is hyperbole or not, he would say, I don't know if the whole world can contain all those books. That's crazy. Like, he doesn't know the world of iPads. I mean, at least you can fit 64 gigs in this iPad. And you know what I'm saying? Like, that's a, there's a, I does it all the books in the world. What a crazy thought. And so our goal this morning is to get at what takes place there. So first things first, we're going to do just the story. We're going to read through this story. Um, I hope it helps. Let me get to Mark real quick. Um, I hope this helps. And, and if not, uh, then, well, it's, and go home and take a nap, okay? Um, here, here we are in verse 1. Um, I'm going to read through this real quick before we get to the views, and I'm just going to give us a, a, uh, just a uh, blank slate as far as what's happening in the story. Uh, if you've never been here before, I'm going to read a couple verses, explain it, read a couple verses, explain it, and then we'll get at this multi-perspective idea. So here it is in uh, verse 1 of chapter Two, it says this, And when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. So there's two things very quickly with these first two verses that I want us to to recognize. Jesus has been traveling around. He comes home. We don't know um, if this is literally his house. It's debated that it would would probably be his house. But at least the the area that he's in, he's come home. People recognize this. And so they're crowding in a house because what he's been doing is, I mean, remember the leper, you guys. The leper was walking around, unclean, unclean. And now he's clean. Somebody had a fever and now they're healed. Demons are there and now they're cast out. And so everyone's hearing about this. I mean, Even if nothing else, you would want to see the fire burn. Even if you didn't care or didn't want to be healed, people are crowded into this house to see this dude Jesus do what he's doing. It's pretty amazing stuff, right? So um, 
They're, they're walking and it says this, I'll read it in verse two. And many were gathered together. So there's not even room at the door. Okay. Not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. I just, um, on these two, two things, I just want to um, share, cause I think it's important as we move forward with this, it's really cool to see Jesus. Um, at first he's going into the synagogues, which is our modern day churches. He's going into these synagogues. He's casting out demons and he's doing great things. But for Jesus, it doesn't just take place in the church. Right? Like, so what he's doing, and then he also goes home. There seems to be this, what happens um, within the church is all, there's, there's this holistic ministry. He's, he's taking care of um, uh, the, the people inside the church, and he's at the church, but he's also at home. There's no, like, I do what I do at home, I do what I do at work, and I do what I do at church. It seems to be all meshed together for Jesus, which is really cool to see. But not only that, holistically, he's approaching these people who are sick, and he's not just healing them. So he's not just doing social justice, providing water, wells, providing food, um, doing some type of outreach, but it's Essentially, he's also, as it says towards the end of verse 2, and he was preaching the word to them. So he is healing, he is doing these things, but he is also spiritually nourishing them, which is a a big deal for us, especially in our philosophy, that we want to be holistic in our approach to people. Let's just keep going through this story. And they came bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near to him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed in which the paralytic lay. So Jesus is inside of this house. There's not even room at the door. And suddenly what happens is uh, the roof opens. There are four dudes. They're in a fishing town. So they knew how to tie a good knot. They tie this mat, which this guy who's on a mat, usually it would probably be about a quarter of this size or a third of this size. You would have this mat. And and when I was in Ghana and Romania, um, I saw this exact thing where these, these paralytics would sit on mats and they... They, they, they asking for food, get, give me food. And they're asking for food as they sit on their mats. Okay. Well take one of those mats, they tie some rope to it and they drop them through the roof. Now this isn't some easy task. It's not like they got like 21st century shingles. Y'all it's not something that they can just pull up. I mean, to be honest with you, this is how I want you to process. This roof could be at least two feet thick. The way it would start is you would get these, these wood beams, um, branches, and you'd put mud on, and then you'd put palm tree branches, and then you'd put more wood and palm tree branches. It has to be heavy enough at least to hold four men. Okay. So it's, 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 it's probably around two feet thick. It's not just a Hulk smash. And then it's open. Okay. It's way more like dig, dig, pull away, dig. And they're inside the church, inside the the house and, and stuff's falling on Jesus. Now this is Jesus house. He's like, okay, what the heck? Um, okay. Um, so, so the, 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 it's being pulled away. And eventually there's an an opening enough for this man to kind of come in, right? Just light, like, "Ah," okay, he's dropped in. These four men are looking down and like Jesus and Jesus is like, yeah, thanks. Okay. Um, And so here's this paralytic and and he's laying there. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. Now, some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts. Why does this man speak like this? He is blasphemy. Who can uh, forgive sins, but God alone. And immediately Jesus perceiving in his spirit, uh, that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, why do you question these things in your heart? So um, we have uh, this house. Again, it's crowded. Now there's this roof that's broken in, so maybe more light. There's people looking in on the roof. There's this paralytic lay there. Jesus says to this paralytic, hey, your sins are forgiven. Now, we haven't been told because there's this new party introduced into this story, isn't there? And maybe they're in the corner or they're on the side, and they're sitting there. These scribes, these Pharisees are sitting there, and, and Jesus says, your sins are forgiven, and they go, why, why does he do this? Now, what's so awesome about this is... Um, Um, Jesus does not hear them say anything. Matter of fact, Jesus doesn't even sense that they're saying something. And we'll use the word sense. Jesus senses that they think something, right? Now, this is weird because sometimes I've heard this comment, and I've thought it myself, um, and it would be cool to be alive when Jesus was alive and to, like, be one of his disciples. 
except um, like you're sitting there and he's like, all right, let's pray. And you just think to yourself, man, we sure do pray a lot. And he's like, what's that, Sean? And I'm like, I was, yeah, yeah, that's my fault, right? He's like, he's like, all right, let's eat our fish. And then, you know, John's like, fish again? He's like, John, you got something to say, right? He's like, I just love fish. Let's pray. Okay, right? So we like to think of this idea, but Jesus is perceiving thoughts. The dude is in your brain, right? He's Professor Xavier, and you can't think of anything, and he's not. So he perceives their thoughts, and he goes, hey, why are you thinking like this? Okay, which is, is really cool. Now, I want to say something. We're going to come back to this when we get to the views, to um, specifically the, the scribes here. But for them, this is a big deal. They're, they're hearing this, and they go, why do, you, why do you say this man's sins are forgiven? Only God alone can forgive sins. And they're, they're, they're kind of disturbed about this, because in this moment, Jesus is very much declaring that he is God. And though um, you may hear this, this is uh, constantly told us by different religions that Jesus never says he is God, which, um, to be honest with you, is true. Jesus never literally says that he is God, but... Um, and I think that's intentional. We don't have time to unpack that. But we have countless, countless examples of Jesus saying things that only God can say. And the Jews clearly believe he's God. So if we're just going to go contextual, the Jews believe he's God so much that they're willing to kill him at one point. And John, as he says, as Abraham was, I am, right? So Jesus is claiming before Abraham was, I was there, I am God. Only God makes that declaration. I am who I am. And, and they go to kill him and somehow he like sneaks away. It's a really bizarre story, right? So um, Jesus in this moment is declaring that he is God. I, I have a quote that I hope helps with this. It's by a man named Tim Keller. He's a, a pastor at Redeemer Church in New York. Um, and he wrote a really good book for those of you who are still considering Christianity, wondering about Christianity called uh, The Reason for God that I think would be helpful. We're actually going to buy a box of them and get them to those of you who would, who would like them. But this is what it says. Um, he gives a good example. So here he says, let's say Tom, Bill, and John are talking. Tom punches Bill smack in the mouth. There's blood everywhere. Then John goes up to Tom and says, Tom, I forgive you for punching Bill in the mouth. It's all right. It's over. What is Bill going to say once he's calmed down? John, you can't forgive him. Only I can forgive him. He didn't wrong you. He wronged me. You can only forgive a sin if it's against you. That's why when Jesus looks at the paralyzed man and says your sins are forgiven, he's actually saying your sins have really been against me. The only person who can possibly say that to a human being would be their creator, Jesus Christ, by forgiving the man is claiming to be God Almighty. The religious leaders know it. This man is not just claiming to be a miracle worker. He is claiming to be the Lord of the universe, and they are understandably furious about it. So um, when I was in uh, um, that summer, when I shared my story, uh, when I was over the summer and I went to foster care and I spent some time in foster care, my dad eventually got out of prison and my dad could could come get me. And I'm in the foster care system. But what's really important about that is um, anybody could have showed up to the courtroom that day and said, hey, I'm Sean Myers' father. Anybody could have done that, okay? But when my dad got there, he had to show an ID I had to recognize him. There had to be papers that were notarized and signed. There had to be something to declare. Yeah, anybody can say that they're Sean's dad, but I need proof of that. And so what Jesus says is, hey, why are you questioning in your hearts? Why, are you, what, what's, what's, why do you think that? And so what he says, and this is a big deal in verse 9, which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk. And then listen to this in verse 10, but that you may know 
that the son of man has authority on earth to forgive sins. And then he turns to the paralytic. He says to the paralytic, I say to you, rise up, pick up your bed and go home. I want you to notice that in this moment, what Jesus is doing is creating synonyms um, between this man's brokenness and this man's sin, but not in uh, 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 this man's par- being um, uh, paralyzed and this man's sin, but not because um, this, this man is, is a sinner, right? But it's not because of his sin that he's paralyzed, but what, rather what Jesus is doing is he's saying, I have the power to forgive sin. Let me prove it to you. And the way that I prove it, like my dad brings a proof that he was my dad to take me out of foster care is he comes and he says, rise up and walk. Now, anybody can say your sins are forgiven. Anybody can say that, but ain't nobody going to walk and be like, yeah, yeah, stand up and walk. Not everybody can do that. And so for proof that Jesus has the authority to forgive sins, he says that you may know that he has the authority to forgive sins, he, he has this guy walk up. So, so there's, the, there's this cool kind of um, uh, bob and weave to what Jesus is doing to prove that he has the authority to forgive sins. And the Jews recognize only God has the authority to forgive sins, which is true. So let's keep going. We've got to round this out because we've we got our views to get to, don't we? So um, verse 12, it says this, and he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went before them all so that they were all amazed, glorified God saying, we never saw anything like this. This is, this is um, really cool because uh, here you have this scene. This man's dropped in. These guys are looking in. Uh, Jesus says, your sins are forgiven. He eventually says, why don't you stand up, take your bed home, take your mat. Some of your translations would even say couch. That's how long they would sit on it. Take this mat and go home, go. And he stands up and he walks out. And the place just goes nuts. So the people are below, yeah, right? And uh, the people are like freaking out as he walks through this. And the dude's just like, what up, right? Okay. Um, so he rolls out of there with his mat and the place just goes bonkers. And Jesus again shows himself. This is the reason everyone is in that room. They were waiting for that to say, I mean, it's the reason we watch NASCAR. We don't watch it to see who wins. We're looking for Rex, baby. I mean, that's what we're watching for. And so everyone's sitting in the room. They're waiting to see what happens. And this is exactly what they were hoping to see. Cool. So there's the veneer. There's the kind of what the story is. Let's get at the views. So let's talk about the four people, I believe, that are in this room that we can absolutely identify as a church. Um, and, and some of them are erroneous, some of them are good, but four different views, like a vantage point or a babble or go or whatever you want to call it, four different views of this same story. And let's start with the guys we were just talking about, the scribes, the Pharisees. So here you are, you are a religious leader, okay? You have authority um, to not forgive sins, but to at least point people to how to have their sins forgiven. People very much honor you, people very much submit to you people very much look to what you have to say and you find yourself in this room with this dude jesus because you're trying to figure out what's going on a matter of fact it says even scribes so pharisaical scribes they're writing down what's taking place and and this scene is as they happen so the roof starts to shake they got nice robes man okay so these things are dirt's falling on their their robes what is going on the roof of roof eventually busts in it fills with dust and you're standing there kind of in the back wondering what is going on because if it was my synagogue i would be angry but jesus isn't angry right jesus looks at this um poor paralytic and he says your sins are forgiven now this is from their vantage point they're watching this and they have this authority um, that has been given to them by god so much so that they believe that they are born into this authority they physically by their birth they are children of abraham and they're watching what takes place and they say actually well truth be told they they okay and then jesus is like what's that okay um that was me thinking i was perceiving you see do i need to do it again no okay um 
So they're sitting there, they're saying within their hearts, hey, why, are, why, why is this dude saying he can forgive sins? And they're angry. They even use this word blasphemy. They're, they're blaspheming against God. Who, who does this dude think he is? And here's this first view that I, I think we can relate to because suddenly the God that they can control by doing all the right things, the God that they had in a box, the God that said, hey, listen, man, um, if you don't watch certain movies here and you don't listen to certain music here, as long as you show up on Sunday during spring break, as long as you get in yourself in the community, as long as you're reading your Bible, hey, don't sin, don't do these things, and God is cool with you. Like, you, you've earned it which there's so much truth to that, but what the Pharisees miss is all those things have to be repercussions or responses to what Jesus is doing in this moment, which is unmerited grace. And so suddenly for these scribes, these Pharisees, um, they, they, they lose control. Like, like the God that, that they are sons of, suddenly, whoa, 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 who are, you're not God. You're not God. And they're upset that Jesus would claim to be God, that he has authority. Man, does this rub against us, right? Like for so many of us, we want to leverage our good works to God into a corner. That if we think we can get it all right, that if we can put uh, uh, the cards in a row and we get all of our ducks set, then we're, we're, we're good. But, but unfortunately, um, what Jesus does in this moment is he messes it up and he says, I'm the one who forgives sins. I, I, I'm the one who does this. And, and for some of you, just as a, a side note, because I think this view points to this, um, from an atheistic point of view, you are so similar to the Pharisees. Yeah, Jesus is a good dude, but he's not God. Yeah, Jesus is, is cool, but, but he's not God. Um, from a trusted source, I can't say this because there's a book written, um, being written right now by a um, pretty prominent atheist, um, and she is writing this book because she's having a lot of struggles. And I just want to read it to you. Um, I'm not going to tell you who it is. You'll, you'll, I'll end up in a couple of months being able to, well, whatever, you don't care. Um, this, is, this is what it says. I think this is helpful, written from an atheist. She says this, We are well-educated skeptics. We regard religion as belief in unbelievable things. Trust tools of intellectualism um, have dismantled belief. But, so let me just say this. This is essentially what she's saying. Man, we have figured out how to prove there's not a God, essentially. We have these tools, whether through scientific approach, mathematical approach, whatever it is, we have these tools to say there is not a God. We, we, we think those who believe are foolish. They believe in unbelievable things, and it doesn't make sense. And then she goes on to say this. But we now sense something that eludes those trusted tools, we are finding that we have inexplicably metaphysical feelings. I have tried to fill this hole with lots of stuff, love, achievement, stuff of therapy, and yet we still hate religion, but this religion haunts us, and we are haunted by faith in the spiritual. So um, even as an atheist, how similar we are to um, the scribes and the Pharisees to go, this dude is, is a good dude, but he's not God, right? And we're struggling with Jesus even being God and that there would be a God. And yet there is something deep within you, right? I've said this the last couple of weeks, Ecclesiastes 3.11, eternity is stored up in your hearts as you're on your way. God is creating you. And as you're on your way out the door being birthed, he says, wait a minute. He sticks eternity in you and says, there's something within you that longs for more. And so people in this room are, are looking. And what's crazy about this is whether religious or atheist, it seems to me um, that at least uh, from th- this point of view, we're sitting in the room not to encounter Jesus, not to be healed with Jesus, but just to watch what we can do so we can critique him. And that's unfortunate. 
Because some of us, that I think we fall, that vantage point, that view, some of us fall in there. And, and we're not interested in who Jesus actually is or even who he says he is. But we've seen his followers. We don't like what his followers do. Therefore, he's not God. And we try to scientifically prove him um, out of his, his, his own home in this moment, right? And so um, it's an interesting deal. But let's come back to him because there, there's this first view. The, the, the second view, I think, is, is helpful. And it's uh, those of the sick. Let me, let me read um, this to you again because I think this is very helpful. Uh, in this, um, uh, just this part. And they came bringing to him a paralytic man by, uh, by four men, and when they could no longer get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him, and when they had made an opening, they let down the bed of the paralytic. So we're back in our story. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Okay, this is... Um, so here, now, now we're the paralytic. So we were just the Pharisees, now we're the paralytic. I don't know how old this guy is. Let's say he's 30. He has spent 30 years of his life, or maybe let's just say five years. Okay, let's just say he just recently became a paralytic. Um, he, five years of his life, he's laying on this bed and he's constantly asking for food, constantly begging. And all he can think to himself is, if, if I wasn't paralyzed anymore, if I could walk, let's just say paralyzed from the waist down. If I, if I could walk, then man, maybe I, I'd get a decent job and make decent money. I, I, I would be normal. I wouldn't have to beg. I would live in a house. Maybe I'd get married. Maybe I'd have kids. If I could just stop being paralyzed. And so he has these men, whether friends or not, he has these guys put him through and here's his moment. The dude's been waiting to meet this Jesus Christ because he knows he's heard this guy heals people. Here's his moment. Jesus, you can heal me. And Jesus looks at this paralytic and he says, your sins are forgiven. You have to imagine like someone sick next to him is like, hey, Jesus, I don't think that's what he's here for. I, I think he wants his legs fixed. Okay? And the, the guys are like looking down. The four guys are saying like, what, what does that have to do with anything? Okay? So, so, so here Jesus, though this man has been waiting for his physical healing, Jesus looks at him and says, yeah, we'll get to that. But here's what you need to understand. Your sins are forgiven. This is crazy. This is, this is crazy because I, I think from this vantage, pew, uh, vantage point, um, we can relate so comfortably because for so many of us, this is kind of the harp constantly, right? That um, though it's not just materialistic things that you want, I don't think anyone out loud would say, if I just had a house, if I just had a car, there are things that we constantly put before what we deem as sin. Nobody wants to talk about sin. I've never sat down with someone who's going through a tough time, like, hey, what's going on? And he just sits down and he's like, Whew. I just got a lot of pride, man. I just got a lot of pride. I'm just a sinner, right? No one ever says that. It's, no, my marriage is a wreck. Uh, I'm struggling financially. Uh, I got this issue. I got that issue, whatever it is. No one ever says this, and they want to get right to that point, but no one ever wants to say, hey, Jesus, and then to this point. I, I was just sharing with my community the other night. The perfect example of this is when Candace and I um, were, were pastors, and we were youth pastors, um, with uh, obviously this youth group, and what was amazing to me with, was that parents would come to me, and they would say, hey, um, I really want my son or I really want my daughter to get involved into to, uh, the youth ministry. Okay, great. What's going on? You know, it's like, man, I just, you know, they're getting real bad grades right now or they're hanging out with the wrong people. And I just really feel like if I can get them into church, their life would get on track. Okay. Which from a parent's view, you go, yeah, that's, that's totally it. Totally awesome. Right. But, but can you see what happened there? Jesus or the church became a means to an end. If I can get them to church, then their life will be fixed. 
So I need to use Jesus or I need to use church to get to a different end. And in, in this moment, like all of us, like the paralytic, if I could just stand, if I could have my legs, I would have a normal life. If I could just do this. And Jesus is like, it's so much more than that. The irony of this whole situation is here is a physical man um, uh, slumped down, sitting, paralyzed, a physical man paralyzed, but spiritually standing tall in faith in a room with men who are physically standing tall as scribes and Pharisees, but spiritually paralyzed. So you can have your legs and still miss it. You can still miss the reason you were created. You can still miss the eternity that is stored up in your hearts. There's a a phenomenal example of uh, this. Uh, C.S. Lewis wrote the the, the book, The Chronicles of Narnia. And you can actually watch this movie, The Voyage of the Dawn Treader. And in the Voyage of the Dawn Treader, um, really cool scene. There's a guy named uh, Eustace, really annoying character, uh, little little boy. Um, and he basically uh, ends up on the Dawn Treader, which is the ship. No one likes him. He doesn't like anyone. He doesn't shut up. He just constantly is annoying, right? And so over and over, well, they end up on this island as this ship. And um, he travels into a cave, and he sees tons of gold insane amounts of gold in this bracelet and he puts it on and he's like dude i'm gonna be rich and while in the cave he falls asleep and when he wakes up he realizes as so does everyone else that he is a dragon as he goes to sleep with these dragonish thoughts he wakes up and he is a dragon right and c.s lewis is writing something here right in this parallel which we'll get to get to because now um here is this boy who is now a dragon and he realizes he can't go on the ship he's too heavy for the ship he is stuck to the island and he's, he's so frustrated, and he finds himself crying, and he, want, he wants to uh, get, get this dragon's head. He's so uh, afraid that, uh, man, I'm going to be stuck on this island forever. I'm sorry for my greed. And so eventually, um, the Jesus figure, this lion, Aslan, comes to him and says, hey, come with me. And so here's this scene, this dragon and this lion walking over to this pool. And Aslan, the lion, says, all right, take off the dragon's skin. And so... The, the boy now, who's a dragon, begins to rip and tear at the dragon skin. In the first attempt, he rips off the dragon skin, but he realizes under the dragon skin is just more dragon skin. And so he does it again as he bites and gnaws, and under that dragon skin is more dragon skin. And so he rips and he bites some more, but unfortunately, under that dragon skin is more dragon skin. And so he's tired, he's panting, he's done. And so um, Aslan walks over to him, and this is the way that um, uh, Eustace tells the, the story, which I, I think uh, might be helpful from this point, because, um, yeah, this is um, from the, the, the point of view from Eustace, what happens there. He says this, I was afraid of his claws. This is Eustace talking about Aslan. But I was pretty nearly desperate now. The very first tear he made was so deep that I thought it had gone right into my heart. And we began to pull the skin off. It hurt worse than anything I ever felt. He peeled the beastly stuff right out off of me, just as I thought I had done myself the other three times, only then it didn't hurt. Then he caught hold of me, threw me in the water, and I saw that I turned into a boy again. So what, what Lewis is painting here is, man, we have deep, dragonish thoughts. We have deep, dragonish sins. We have things that like a paralytic, if I can just get this to get taken care of, if I can just get my life on track here and we tear away. And unfortunately what we find is it's all the same. And the only way to do this is to have Jesus stick his deep claws into us. And though it hurts and though it tears to say, I know you want to stand. I know you don't want to be paralyzed anymore, but we need to work on something 
deeper. We need to work on something deeper. Your sins are forgiven. And from this vantage point, and nobody likes that. Nobody likes being told they're a sinner, especially when we are just told that this Jesus figure claims to be God. Stuff. This isn't something that we would, we would take lightly, right? And so there's the second vantage point. First, the religious nature of it. The second, the, the, the man or woman, you or I, who needs Jesus to um, tear away these old things. Uh, the third perspective, a third point of view, we're almost done, um, is that of the friends. So, so I, I, wanna, um, I want to read that same text that we just read, and I want you to notice something, an emphasis that I'm going to put on these words um, because I, I think it's very helpful. And we're going to start in verse 3. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near to him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed in which the paralytic lay. And Jesus saw their faith. What's amazing about this is here's this paralytic. So now you have these dudes, whether they're friends or not, let's just say they're walking. Guys like, dude, you got to help me get to this dude, Jesus. He'll heal me. And so the four guys are like, their buddies with them or whatever. They take him, they tie these knots. They begin to dig and they, and it's not an easy task, right? They're digging, they're, they're pulling away, not just to mention the time that they're giving. They're pulling away. They open this room and then they use their might to kind of wiggle him down there, right? And they're, they're moving him down. Okay, we got it. And he's down on the ground and they worked hard for this. And Jesus, Jesus does not look at the paralytic and say, because of your faith, Jesus looks at whose faith? Their faith. Jesus looks at their faith. Okay, this is, this is so big for us. This is so big for us. Because now suddenly from the point of view, the same story, we see men who are willing to give up their time, their energy, their effort. They're willing to give up their strength, their, um, their high position, whatever it is, for someone lower than them. They are willing to give up the things that they have, whether it be energy, whether it be a shovel, um, our hands. They're willing to give up something for this man. And, and, and I think it's, it's, it's a big deal because I think it points us to two things. One, um, I think this, man, this pushes hard against why we love the idea of everyone being in community so much. Like th- this, this really, when you begin to talk about uh, Sean is a dude who is a sinner and he, man, he's a terrible husband. Uh, most days. He's a terrible father most days. Like I, I yell and I snap and I get upset and I think wrong thoughts. And, and fortunately, by God's grace, when I sit in a room with people, um, they can begin to tell me, right? Like this is, um, this is perfect for community because now when we sit in a room with someone and I go, hey, like, why are you thinking like that? And somebody can push on me and somebody can carry me when I can't carry myself. But furthermore, we can serve each other, right? So my community, the Myers community, we adopted the Somali family, the single mom with three kids. Um, She continues to say she speaks English. She doesn't speak English. She continues to say she does. Um, But we haven't yet to have a conversation, right? And so um, by God's sovereignty, by his grace, um, in his beauty, so here's Machar right here, my man right here. Machar, yeah, there he is. Raise up that hand, okay? Machar, in God's providence, um, comes to our congregation the same time we adopt this family. And you know who speaks the same language as this mom? Yeah, Machar does, right? So what do I do? What is our, hey, nobody knows that language in our community. So we can sit awkwardly in a room and she, and I just found out she wants to like get her driver's license. She wants to drive. And we're like, whoa, just, 
you need to learn to speak English first, right? Machara's laughing, right? Okay, so, um, so Tim, Machara, and I, we, we go and visit her. And if it wasn't for him, if it wasn't for someone else to come alongside this family, I don't know what I've done. And this, that's a perfect small image because Machara doesn't just offer this ability to um, bring another language, right? Machara wasn't even born in the United States. He didn't come here until he was a teenager. Imagine the point of view that he has and the way we live our lives that is so much differently than you. Like, imagine the rub that Machar can go is like, dude, you're selfish. Like, like, you're not honest. That's not the way it should be done because I don't know if you know this, the, the American way isn't always the right way. You know that, right? Like, maybe even most of the time, okay? And, and so, and so my, my point is this, socioeconomic, gender, um, different ages, different stages of life, take all these people and you put them in a room with each other and you go, hey, let's talk about the gospel, which offends everyone. And suddenly you look at people who are too comfortable. Suddenly you look at people who are are giving to the death of their and the detriment of their family and and you're beginning to push. And we say, hey, we don't just want college kids in the room because you put 22-year-olds in the room together and they try to figure out life. That's all bad, right? That's all, okay? So, so you put all these in, but, but now you add somebody who's 70, and then you add somebody for a different race, and you add a different gender, and you put this mosh posh of people, and then you have the church. We suddenly become not just the paralytic who is being let down on our mats, but we also become the men and women who make those knots and help each other. This is the beauty of their, that Jesus sees their faith. It is communal. It is plural. It is beautiful. Lastly, and this is how we'll close. Um, as we go into the, the last point of view, the last perspective, as we had the religious person, the person who would probably not worry about their sin so much, but wants certain things. And then the communal side, people coming around them. We have the man who is doing it all, who it's centered around Jesus. And he is by all rights and purposes, offending all of them. What's beautiful about this is let me read a C.S. Lewis quote from you. It's from The Weight of Glory that I think is helpful because it explains what Jesus exemplifies, but also what we are called to do in community. It says this, it may be possible for each to think too much of his own uh, potential glory hereafter. So we can think of maybe too much of ourself going to heaven hereafter, but it is hardly possible for me to think too often or too deeply about that of my neighbor. The load or weight or burden of my neighbor's glory should be um, laid daily on my back, a a load so heavy that only humanity can carry it, and the backs of the proud will be broken. It is with awe that we should conduct all of our dealings with one another, all friendships, all loves, all play, all politics. There are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. It is immortals whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, exploit. Next to the blessed sacraments itself, your neighbor is the holiest object presented to your senses. Get it, Lewis. He's going, listen, you're not, your waitress has a soul, right? You know that. When they come into, so, so you being rude to them, uh, they're not just some immortal. They have, they have, or more some mortal. They have immortal souls. They, they will live forever in one place or another. Your community is so much more than just here and now. There is eternal ramifications of what's going on. And so this brings us, this leads us to Jesus who offends all three. Because when Jesus looks at this man and says, your sins are forgiven. When Jesus looks at this man and says, hey, get up and walk. Though he's offending everyone, it's that first statement. Your sins being forgiven that Jesus has to know because he does on a deep level that the Old Testament would tell him 
that for a sin to be forgiven, it requires a sacrifice. And though we can be offended that Jesus would claim to be God, who is he to say that he is God? And though we can be offended that Jesus would tell me my needs are not what's most important, but, but uh, I have sins and we don't like being told we're a sinner. And though we can talk about community, in the end, it is Jesus who bears the weight of all of those things. In the end, it is Jesus who says, I can say, I can forgive his sins because not too long from now, I'm going to bear the weight of them. It is Jesus in his beauty, in his sovereignty, in his authority that lays down all that he is so that he can say to this man, your sins are forgiven. That's you, that's me, and that's us as a church. May we take that perspective to hold tightly to the fact that sometimes we're religious, sometimes we're licentious, sometimes we mess up community and run from it, but in the end, it is Jesus bringing us together and say, all these things are on the, 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 the weight of my back. I hold um, all these things on my shoulders, and that is why I can say your sins are forgiven. No matter what this man does, no matter what this man's done, no matter where he goes from here, who he associates with, it is me and me alone who forgives sins. May we as a church trust him. May we as a church believe in him. May we as a church, whether you're a believer or not in this room, trust in him for the forgiveness of those sins and not ourselves. Let me pray for us.